Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, I had an interesting taste of life on the other side of the Twitter tracks this week, if you will. Um, assuming that you know, I'm normally on the slummy side, so this is the nice side as well. So look, as, as you know, uh, talking about boxing is my weird how did I get here side gig in life and what I consider my main focus as you know is writing about science and the environment and especially climate change um, and earlier this week well I guess last week going out on Monday morning, I wrote a quick turnaround piece for uh, National Geographic about climate modeling, because two of the winners of the Nobel Prize for Physics last week won for their climate modeling work. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, that's very esoteric and inside baseball. Who the hell cares about that? But <laughs> it actually got more social media attention than just about anything I've ever posted. Uh, I'm now on, I think, something like 150 retweets and 300 likes. Um, and which, you know, for the kind of level that, that we slum around in on Twitter is pretty good going. Um, and largely, I got all of that attention because it was retweeted by uh, Michael Mann, who has very many more followers than I do. Um, I should point out, perhaps, that this is Michael Mann, distinguished professor at Penn State University and not Michael Mann of Miami Vice and other schlock. I have no idea if that Michael Mann has any interest in climate modeling at all. Oh, so so it's not the Michael Mann who directed the Ali movie, you're saying? You are correct. Okay. Well, I don't know much about this Michael Mann. And yet, knowing nothing about him, I know he could make a better Ali movie than the other one. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. But seriously, uh, congrats on the attention the article got. Uh, must uh, Must be nice to have some aspect of your professional life in which you're making a difference <laughs> in the world. Uh, this podcasting about boxing thing, we're, we're accomplishing nothing of consequence here. So I'm, I'm glad that you're yeah. also engaged in serious and important pursuits. No, honestly, there are times I think that each single one of our podcasts make the world just that little bit of a worse place, actually. <laughs> so this is nice, nice to have that counter. Um, I, I can't really dispute that, that we're making the world a little worse, but I guess I'll say I think there are other boxing podcasts and boxing journalists who make the yes. world a lot worse. There so, you know, so we got that. By making it us. only a little bit worse, we are almost by definition making it better. <laughs> There's, that's a great spin. Let's go with that. All right. Uh, we actually have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Um, the big news, of course, without question, the big news uh, is that the Hall of Fame ballots are out. And Eric and I will compare our thoughts on the new and existing candidates. There's the latest on the Tiafimo Lopez-George Cambosis embarrassment. Um, a slew, if you will, of new fight announcements. Our friend Stephen Bradman Edwards will be joining us. And I will finally be revealing my top five hypothetical celebrity deathmatch claymation <laughs> boxing matchups after managing to avoid it for a week. Um, but I think that's it. I think that covers just about everything is there anything else we should talk about? oh yes right just one thing uh there was a fight in las vegas on saturday night uh don't know did you see this did you hear about this uh <laughs> saturday night in las vegas tyson fury overcame deontay wilder again in an instant classic to remain the heavyweight champion of the world Instant classic, indeed. The third meeting between Fury and Wilder was surely the best of their trilogy. Five knockdowns, 
big swings in momentum and an 11th round knockout win for Fury that dropped Wilder to 42-2-1 with 41 KOs. And he's still 42-0 and against opponents not named Tyson Fury, <laughs> by the way, uh, while Fury improved to 31-0-1 with 22 KOs and retained his lineal heavyweight title. Wilder started well. It was looking like a very different fight than their previous mm. meeting. But in the third round, Fury hurt him with a right hand and scored a knockdown. But just when it looked like another dominant Fury KO win was coming, Wilder landed his right hand in the fourth and scored two knockdowns. But within a round or two, Fury was back in charge and fatigue was clearly setting in for Wilder. Deontay went down in the 10th from a right hand and then in the 11th from yet another right and ref Russell Mora waved it off without a count at 110 of the 11th round. It was brutal. It was thrilling. Mm -hmm. It was sloppy. It was instantly hailed as a heavyweight classic. Kieran, in the immediate afterglow as we record this on Sunday, just how highly do you rate what we saw on Saturday night? Um, At the risk of sounding grinchy, possibly not quite as highly Hmm. as seemingly everyone else on the planet. But look, don't get me wrong. It was a fantastic fight. Uh, featuring two men at the top of their game who would not willingly yield. And honestly, you have to feel that either man would surely have beaten any other man on Saturday night. Um, Deontay Wilder really raised his game. I thought he showed immense, unbelievable heart and strength, even as he sort of reminded us again of his weaknesses. Um, You know, like you said, he came out in that first round with some vitality and with a clear plan to work Fury's body. But then he promptly abandoned it, although you have to figure that had at least as much to do with Fury making him abandon it. Um, He showed his incredible ability to turn around any fight with that right hand of his. But for the second fight in a row, showed a relative lack of stamina, which prevented him from pressing the advantage that he had. As He appeared to be, as you talked about, really fighting on fumes from relatively early in the contest, just as he did in the second fight with Fury. I don't know whether that's because like he's carrying extra bulk around on those still skinny legs of his, whether it's conditioning issues, the fact that he just burns himself up with nervous energy, that he was concussed early, all of the above. I'm not entirely sure. I suspect all of the above. Um, but again, a lot of it had to do with the 277 pounds of traveler across the ring from him. Um, look, Fury perhaps as expected and predicted, and we certainly consider this a possibility, wasn't quite as sharp as he had been last time out. But again, he came in with a plan. And I think he also showed an ability to adapt on the fly. Like he took that first round. Okay, he's clearly thinking, I wasn't expecting Deontay to be doing this. All right, I'll just do something else to the big dosser. Um, And he showed, again, that this inhuman ability to bounce back from being hurt and even dropped. You know, when he was... On his toes at the start of the fifth round, after being dropped twice in the fourth, I was reminded of Ernie Shavers recounting how he basically just said, uh-oh, to himself when he saw Larry Holmes climb off the deck against him, you know, and it must have, must feel like that. You, you crack the guy and down he goes, and then the next thing you know, he's the one on his toes. It's amazing. Um, Fury is just, he's just the most improbable of fighters, isn't he? Um it's often said, it's not correct, but it's often said that according to the laws of physics, Bumblebee shouldn't be able to fly. And by the same logic, Fury should not. I mean, to look at him physically in comparison to, say, Deontay Wilder or Anthony Joshua, you do not expect him to be the biggest, baddest, <laughs> best heavyweight fighter on the planet. 
And a man of that size certainly shouldn't be able to fight the way he does. He has this unique ability to both combine and switch from like on his toes, almost Ali-esque boxing to just flat-footed slugging. Sometimes in the same round, sometimes even in the same sequence of punches. Right. He's got astonishing stamina, um, which is surely aided by the fact he's so relaxed. His mental strength is extraordinary. And all of these things were on, on display Saturday night in an incredible fight. So why did I initially sound a wee bit less enthusiastic than some? If I do muck it down a little bit compared to some other great heavyweight fights, it's to me, after the fifth or sixth rounds, there was only going to be one winner. Um, and as much as we know, and we nearly saw in the fourth, that a wounded, wounded Wilder is a dangerous beast and can still win. Actually, I was growing increasingly concerned by the way he was reacting to Fury's punches. And just the way he was looking at Malik Scott in the, in the corner. He, he, I mean, he was clearly, like you said, exhausted. But he also looked concussed to me. It looked like he mm. wasn't focusing very well. And, and maybe that's just me, but I was kind of growing increasingly concerned, uh, certainly by the ninth round, about the fact that the fight was still going and the punishment he was taking and what that was going to mean for him long term, um, which is perhaps a reflection more of my own sort of conflicted attitude toward boxing than, than, than anything else. But having said all that, I also didn't see an obvious place for Russell Moore to step in and stop it before right. he did, because Wilder, even if he was just fighting on heart and instinct, kept throwing and sometimes landing, sometimes, you know, and, and again, as long as Deontay Wilder can land a punch, you think you got to let him in there and you got to yeah. give him a chance. And of course, there was no way after everything that happened in the aftermath of the last fight that Scott or anyone else in Wilder's corner was going to stop it. Uh, even though I, I personally felt it was veering into corner stoppage territory by n certainly nine or ten, something like that. But again, not very obviously so. Um so, so yeah, the fact that for me, it was pretty clear after about six rounds that unless something drastic happened, Tyson Fury is going to win that means it's a little bit less of a classic in my mind than some others. But it was still, I thought, a phenomenal fight in which we saw absolutely the best of, of what the very best boxers have to offer. Um, and I should, as a final word, acknowledge what it meant for the sport. Um, the heavyweight championship of the world should always be a stop the traffic sport type of sporting event and, and this one was um but as our good friend rick sierra uh, noted in this week's tweet of the week uh it was also the highlight among a series of recent highlights you know for all the craziness for all the youtube fights for the over the hill exhibition tour for fights falling through due to covid boxing has by and large outside of the last miserable few weeks been on a pretty darn good run and rick who is at rs sports numeral two noted so now those who didn't know will say boxing is back after last night's bout guess what never left like anything in life boxing has its ups and downs and right now it's on an up curve and of course it's much easier to feel that way after saturday night than it is after watching evander holyfield get embarrassed at a glorified maga rally <laughs> so i also think we should thank tyson fury and deontay wilder for reminding us why it is we stick through all that kind of nonsense when we just feel dirty and embarrassed to be associated with it. Because when it clicks, like those two did on Saturday night, all you can do is just applaud and be in awe of what these people can, can bring to the table.
Yeah, yeah. Okay, lot, lot to react to there. Uh, jotting a few things down as you were speaking. Um, first of all, so so Rick Sierra gets the the tweet of the week. Uh, he does. Congratulations to him for that. That's uh, you know as close as he'll ever come to appearing on our podcast. So good job, Rick. That's an inside joke between me, Karen, and Rick. But uh, I don't I don't feel like I need to make it an outside joke for all. Let's we'll, we'll Indeed, just laugh exactly. about it and move on. Um, Wilder basically intimidated his own corner into not even thinking about stopping the fight. It was such a unique circumstance there, given the previous fight and the Mark Breland of it all. Um, But it's kind of a problem to have that, to come into a fight with the corner scared to stop it. I'm not sure this fight needed to be stopped before it was. Um, There were moments where it could have been stopped, and I just think that under different circumstances, the corner at least would have considered it, whereas here... It was the 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 law was clearly laid down in advance. You are not allowed to think about stopping this. Either he knocks me cold, or the ref stops it, or it goes the distance, or I win, or whatever. But uh, any of you guys throw in the towel, not an option. So yeah. it's not a good way to come into a fight. So on the issue of of how much of a classic this was, I definitely think I rate it a little more highly than you do. You know, I'm I'm I do come away just wondering. Was this an all-time classic or, or just a modern classic? Uh, mm. it, 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 but it, it is at least some degree of a classic. Um, yes. It was thrilling. It got everyone buzzing about boxing. Uh, and as, as you were just saying, you know, it's boxing being at the top of the Twitter trending list without names like Jake Paul or Mike Tyson yes. involved. Um, it's interesting, really, that, you know, no matter what happened after the fourth round, once Wilder dropped Fury for the first time, and now both men had been on the canvas, there had been one huge momentum swing. That was enough already in a heavyweight title fight. Yeah. Both guys go down and get up. That's a memorable fight. That's a classic yeah. already. Um, I can say for certain it was the best major heavyweight fight since Joshua Klitschko. Yep. I can't say for certain if it was better than that. I- I'd have to rewatch it. And um, that's where you and I kind of diverge a bit here. I think I enjoyed this fight more than you did in the moment. I'm not sure how classic this was in the sense that I'm not sure how it's going to hold up on future viewings. Mm-hmm. You seem to know the outcome with great confidence by about the sixth round. I didn't, and that kept okay. this fight a little more exciting for me. I mean, look, this is true of most great fights that not knowing the outcome helps make it enjoyable. Um, And just knowing the outcome, I don't know if the drama here will fully translate when I rewatch it. Um, You know, as the fight got one-sided from the sixth on, I still had this feeling that that Wilder, even though he's getting his ass kicked, it still felt like he can win this fight with one punch at any time until round 10. I think by then it was pretty clear he didn't have the power anymore to get it done. But up until then, six, seven, eight, nine, even as it was getting bad for him, there was edge of your seat drama for me that I don't know if that's going to be there in future viewings. Um, Gotcha. But maybe it will. As as sloppy as it was, it was never slow. Um, In Joshua Klitschko, I recall there being some duller, slower rounds. Um, Indeed. After Vladimir put AJ down, he just kind of looked at him for a couple of rounds <laughs> right. while, while AJ was trying to get his head back together. Right. So, yeah, that's certainly true. Yes. Right. And I can't remember the first few rounds of that fight, whether there was much going on before mm-hmm. the knockdown started. I, I'm not saying there wasn't. I just don't really remember. Right. Whereas this was entertaining in every single round. Um, 
it's, yeah, it's hard to declare right now that maybe this is the best heavyweight title fight since Bo Holyfield, maybe only since Klitschko Joshua. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't say for sure. Um, one other minor knock on the entertainment value. Referee Russell Mora was a little too involved, I thought. Mm. Um, as you know, Kieran, I had some old friends over, uh, hosted my first pay-per-view party since the start of COVID uh, with Nigel Collins, Bill Detloff, and Jeff Jowett all over at the Palatial Raskin Estate. And uh, <laughs> Nigel must have yelled at Mora to stop interfering like 15 different times. Uh, I was not as pissed as Nigel, but Mora definitely was stepping in too quickly to break him at times, issuing too many ticky-tack warnings, and and hurting the flow of the fight a bit. Not the most important topic on this fight, but I, I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, all right, so, so you said last week that although you predicted Fury would win by late KO, good prediction, uh, Wilder would rehabilitate himself in defeat. The general consensus seems to be that he did just that. So where do you think he goes from here? Do you think he's shown that he is, as Fury said, the second best heavyweight in the world? I think he showed he was the second best heavyweight in the world on Saturday night. Okay. Um, Does he remain that way going forward? I don't know. I worry not just about the punishment he's taken from Fury in two fights in a row now, but also more the ego damage. Uh, he he hasn't given us the impression that he's the kind of guy who can process defeat very easily. Um, or maybe he just can't process defeat to Tyson Fury. Um, but, you know, at least according to Tyson, after the fight, Wilder would barely even acknowledge him, let alone congratulate him or, or, or anything like that. Afterward, Wilder did acknowledge that he tried his best, but that hadn't been good enough. As to this point, there's no blaming spiked water or spies in the camp or tainted gloves. But... Um, some fighters can sort of compartmentalize and move on and some can't some just constantly tortured by by defeat and based on how we reacted the last time around one wonders how Deontay's going to deal with this um you know throwing Mark Breland and JD's under the bus blaming the costume all of that all of those were ways for his ego to rationalize his loss last time what's he going to do this time if he allows the defeat to motivate him if he can come to terms with the fact that Yes, he's 0-2-1 against Fury. But like you said, 42-0 against literally everyone else on right. Earth. He can not only keep going, but I would start him as favorite against every other heavyweight right now. Um, if he allows that loss to consume him, then he might never be the same again. And, and like I said, I do worry in the long term about you know what these last two fights would have, would have done to him. But... You know, if 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 you know if he is able to at some just move on from this and go that chapter of my life is done now I'm going to keep beating up everybody else. Yeah, I would probably make him the favorite against just about against yeah no not even just about against every other heavyweight right now I think. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Um, you know, in, until someone not named Fury beats him, you have to at least no. consider that he might be the second best. Um, I said it before this fight, and I'll say it again. Sign me up for Wilder versus AJ. Loser leaves town. Winner gets another shot. Uh, That won't be next, but that is what I'd like to see. Uh, Otherwise, thinking about who I might want to see Wilder in against, uh, with the caveat that I don't want to see him in with anyone immediately. I want him to take some time off. But uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him against someone like Robert Hellenius, who we'll talk about. Um, Scored a good win on the undercard. Probably someone Wilder gets back in the win column against. But that feels like big, sloppy, power-punching, heavyweight yeah. fun. Um, and, and one other quick wilder note. Um, 
at one point, I think it was after the fifth round when Wilder was doing well, one of the broadcasters said he came in with a game plan and was executing it. And this, you, you touched on this in your in your first answer when we were discussing the first topic, but for one round, that was very true. Um, yes. His success a few rounds later had nothing to do with the game plan. It was him fighting on instinct and bringing that big right hand, uh, which is not a criticism of Wilder. I'm kind of impressed that he tried something different and made it work for a single round because that, that's yes. just not who he is. Uh, and it wasn't going to keep working much longer anyway. Fury is too clever. You got to change it up. If Wilder had kept jabbing to the body, over and over for another round or two, Fury was going to start timing yes. him with right hands over the top and making him pay. Yeah. Um, so what about Fury? What did you make of his performance? We talked a lot about Deontay. Is there anyone out there right now who'd make even a live dog against him? Um, now that AJ has officially exercised his, his rematch clause with Alexander Usyk, who does he even fight next? So this was an uneven performance from Fury, but... Mm. Aren't they usually? Um, yeah. I feel like to an extent, the second Wilder fight spoiled us. You know, it, mm. it showed Fury looking like a perfect fighting machine from opening bell to stoppage. But that's not really who he is. He wasn't in the very best of shape, it seemed, not just because of that high weight figure, but uh, just sort of the way he, he looked and fought. He wasn't as well conditioned as he has been at other times. Now, having COVID and multiple interrupted camps and, and a long yeah. layoff can cause that. So there, there are reasons he might not have been in peak shape, but he was in good enough shape. Um, and because he's not as tense as Wilder, he definitely had the better stamina of the two of them. One thing that really stood out to me in this performance, his jab was yeah. just such a weapon. So stiff when he used it, really controlled Wilder. Yep. And got Wilder moving backward, which is what you want. Wilder is mostly only dangerous when he's coming forward. So from Fury, it was a very good performance. Not perfect, but that's okay. Uh, he, he dealt with the adversity very well. Never lost his composure. Ultimately dominated the back half of the fight. I guess because he does have his momentary letdowns, there are a few live dogs against him. Anyone who can catch you with a big, single, explosive punch has a chance. And I guess we've known that all the way back to the Steve Cunningham fight, really. Right. Um, but I don't see anyone out there that I would bet on against Fury at less than about three to one odds. So mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not sure if that makes anyone all that live a dog, if there's no one I see <laughs> as much less than a three to one dog. The fight that we want to see most for him is against Usyk. But as you said, he's on track for an AJ rematch. So if we can't have that next... A domestic showdown with either Dillian White or mm -hmm. Joe Joyce. I think either of those makes sense. They're big attractions. They're good enough punchers to have a chance. Yep. Um, and by the way, I, I think it's worth circling back for just a moment to the Fury-AJ fight that we didn't get, that we maybe never will get. It was awful for the sport and the fans that the biggest possible event didn't happen. But... Now that we've seen what we got in its place, a, a huge upset for yeah. Usyk in a good fight, a truly great fight in Fury Wilder 3, maybe boxing fans were better off the way things turned out. It's impossible to know, of course, but um, at least we can say the sport ha has definitely gotten some W's out of these consolation prize fights. Boy, yeah, that's an excellent point, isn't it? That, uh, you know, when you, especially when you think about how 
deeply unenthused we all were initially at the thought of doing this fight in particular a third time and then maybe we sort of started talking ourselves into thinking oh maybe it could be a better fight and then we ended up getting this and and obviously Usyk Joshi wasn't anything like as exciting but it was still an intriguing fight Mm -hmm. with which presented us with a whole new player that's a really interesting uh, it's an interesting point actually so uh, there you go maybe we shouldn't be quite so whiny after all We'll find other things to worry about. We have about, plenty I'm sure. of reasons. Exactly. Yes. We have plenty of things. Um, all right. Let's look quickly at the undercard. Uh, last week, you said the fight on the undercard that you were most looking forward to was Frank Sanchez against Effie Jagba. And honestly, with good reason. Two undefeated heavyweight sluggers, seemingly high ceilings. Felt it did feel like a camp miss. And the event it was kind of a dud. Uh, Brian Kenny liked it. But um, not many people in the audience seem to. Uh, Sanchez did drop a Jagba, but otherwise he mostly fairly routinely outboxed. Really a surprisingly hesitant opponent. Uh, is it safe to say it did not live up to your expectations? Yeah, say, safe to say that. It, it didn't. Uh, although, like the main event, it won me some money. So there's that. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> but the money um, disappears. Uh, the, the memories of a dull fight <laughs> remain. Um, Sanchez did his job. Ajagba was a bit too limited, didn't have that win-at-all-cost gear. He he spent Mm. most of the fight resigned to defeat and not terribly interested in doing much about it. It's like that tweet of the week from Breadman recently about AJ not refusing to lose. Ajagba was a little too okay with losing. And Sanchez, not to stereotype, but we've seen this with plenty of Cuban fighters, uh, enough of them that it's not an inaccurate stereotype. Um, He does enough to win, but he leaves you feeling like he could have done more. Um, Good heavyweight, solid skills. He did not build any demand here to see him again. Agreed. Agreed. Um, Meanwhile, you said you were most looking forward to watching undefeated super middleweight Edgar Berlanga. Well, he remained unbeaten, but he was made to work hard and even dropped by Marcelo Esteban Caceres before emerging with a unanimous decision win. Kieran, were you also underwhelmed by your pick for what you were most looking forward to? <laughs> yeah, I, just, I was actually a little surprised he got the unanimous nod. I, I wasn't scoring super closely. Um, I actually thought Caceres might have even nicked it, especially with that 10-8 round. Um, I thought Max Kellerman summed it up well in the, you know, halfway through the fight, in that when you're a guy who isn't blessed with elite speed, you need to compensate with technique and timing. And and Berlanga didn't particularly show either of these. I, I was actually a little bit surprised how slow Berlanga was as well. But look, we also said last week, this was a huge step up and you don't want to be too hard on a guy who came in with what, I think 26 rounds in his entire professional career. <laughs> right. Um, you know, coming in against, as we noted last week, a former world title challenger who gave Billy Joe Saunders a pretty good fight. Um, you know, so we've got to grade him on the curve here. Um, that said, some of his flaws didn't necessarily look to be ones that can be corrected with re- repetition. Some of them looked a little fundamental, but I, what he needs, honestly, is Gordon Hall. He needs a series of showbox main event type fights, I think, to really season and test him and prepare him for the next step. Saturday night was a calculated gamble and it just about paid off. But now they know where he is and maybe have a better idea of his ceiling. And I think he definitely needs to take and there's no harm in this. I mean, he took five leaps forward from who he was facing to who he faced on Saturday night. Right. He needs to take a couple steps back and and work on some stuff and see where we are before he takes any more forward, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, very quickly, the rest of the undercard. 
saw Robert Hellenius, the aforementioned Robert Hellenius, batter Adam Konachki until Konachki was seemingly on the point of being stopped, but actually DQ'd for too many low blows. Uh, Jared Anderson uh, dominated and overmatched Vladimir Tereshkin uh, and stopped him in the second. And Julian J. Rock Williams, in his first fight since losing to Jason Rosario 21 months ago, suffered an upset split decision loss to Vladimir Hernandez. Uh, quick thoughts on those three. I'll go very rapid fire here, maybe uh, about a sentence or so apiece, so we can get to Breadman. Uh, Hellenius looks rejuvenated, um, mm. although Kanachki was always a bit or maybe a lot overrated. And and Kanachki looked like he was fouling on purpose in the hope he'd be yeah. and he could just get the fight over with one way or the other. Uh, Jared Anderson remains an intriguing heavyweight prospect and uh, everybody's favorite big baby in the division. Yes. <laughs> um, and J-Rock... Well, maybe we should save that mostly for Breadman. He'll have more interesting things to say about it than I will. But I'll just note, it was a close fight. Hernandez never stopped coming. Good for him. It could have gone either way, but I can't Mm. gripe about the guy who finished much stronger getting the nod in a close fight. Okay, well, with that, let's go ahead and bring in this week's guest. Uh, He is a regular on the podcast, and he had a ringside seat to all of Saturday's action. Joining us now from Las Vegas, Stephen Breadman Edwards. Brad, welcome back to the podcast. How you guys doing? We're doing all right. We're good. all right. We might be in uh, better spirits than you uh, this morning. I'm not sure. Let's let's. We're going to talk about the big uh, Fury Wilder main event uh, shortly, but uh, we should start by talking about your main event, the the fight that brought you to Vegas this week. Uh, you were back in the corner with Julian J. Rock Williams after the two of you had gone your separate ways following his loss to Jason Rosario 21 months ago. It didn't work out as planned. Uh, J-Rock started well against Vladimir Hernandez, but ended up being outworked down the stretch and dropped a split decision. So we have to know, Brad, what, what did you think about the decision? And, and give us your thoughts on Julian's performance Saturday night. Um, I didn't like the decision, to be mm. totally honest with you. I, I, I didn't think that it was possible for the guy to have won seven rounds because I thought Julian probably took the first half of the fight pretty cleanly. I don't know what you guys thought, but from, you know, from my sink, uh, see, I thought maybe he won maybe four out of the first five rounds, but at the same time, um, I wasn't happy with the performance. Um, Julian started well, you know, I don't have any excuses because we had a good camp. It wasn't a long camp. He came to me August 28th, but, uh, he was in shape and, um, you know, we had a, he had a pretty good camp, you know, uh, we had our strength coach. We, we, we was able to get sparring in, um, you know, he just, for some reason, it just didn't translate to the fight after the fatigue set in, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I told Julian, one of the things that I told him is that, you know, it was a time where, his skill set was so crisp and sharp. Guys would kind of submit to his skill set. And even if he didn't knock them out, they kind of accepted the fact that they would, um, that they couldn't beat him. And I said, but now because people have seen you in a vulnerable spot, especially more than once, they're going to fight you differently. Nobody is going to just, just pack it in after you have a couple of good rounds. They're going to fight you so hard to get you to the other side past your skill set. 
And I said, you're really going to have to earn your victories from here on out for the rest of your career. Mm. And uh, it was something that I warned him about. And it's not, I mean, and I'm not saying he didn't listen to me because he was engaged with me throughout camp. But I don't know if he realized how serious that is to have a man that's fighting you with hope. You know, I even told him a story about that. I know you guys probably heard this, that uh, the experiment with the, the doctor did with the rats in the 1950s. Um, long but short, a doctor took about 15 rats and he uh, he put them in water and he drowned within 15 minutes. So then he did it again. And right before, you know, the new set of rats would drown, he, he rescued all of them and he nursed them back to health. And, you know, and about a month later, he put them in the water and the same species of rats, they lived for like over 45 minutes in the same exact water before they eventually drowned. And he was trying to figure out like, why did the rats that were saved live so long, much longer, like three times longer than the first set of rats. And they attribute it to a four letter word. And that word is hope. Told Julian that your opponents are going to have hope now, son. They're going to fight you so hard. You're going to have to be mentally prepared for that. That's why fighters who overcome losses are really, really, really special because at the top level, a guy sees you vulnerable. They fight you differently. And Vladimir Hernandez, you know, I want to take no credit from the crib kid because I thought Julian probably adds the fight. But the kid fought with a lot of heart. And a lot of um, just vigor, and he hustled, and he he had a never say die attitude, and he fought through a cut and some big punches. And uh, you got to give the guy credit, man. You know, I'm sad because that's not the Julian Williams that I know, but it's part of life and it's part of boxing. You know, um, the 21 month layoff didn't help it. I just didn't, you know, uh, I think it was some ring rust in there, man, you know, um, but it's, it's just weird guys. Cause he was sharp in camp, mm-hmm. you know, is I, I wish I, I could say he had a bad camp, but he didn't, uh, he had a good camp. He trained hard. He was very dedicated. He had, a, um, um, a condo that he trained him and his strength coach. They lived in there. He got his meals delivered, you know, um, um, it was some things I was disappointed with in the Rosario fight, but none of these things resurfaced in this fight. The kid, he put it all out. He did his thing, man. I'm not, you know, he, Julian really dedicated himself to this fight. He really wanted to get back. And I'm kind of hurt for him because I know that he cares about how he's viewed and how he's remembered. And, um, he really, really put forth a lot of effort, man. And to get that result is tough. You know, I just don't, I don't know what to say, you know. Like, it doesn't help that these guys are off for, you know, so long. Yeah. But with the COVID and the current climate, I mean, what can you do? You you, you know, you can only deal with the hand that you got dealt to you. You know, you, 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 you it's not like I got a buffet where I could eat anything. I, I, I got I to gotta eat what's on the plate. You know, I didn't, I didn't want a southpaw, but. Julian can handle that guy, you know. Um, I don't know, man. Just a tough one, 
and you know whatever decisions he makes, you know I'm a I'm a rock with the kid, man. I I care about him, man, and I hope he, you know, physically he's okay. He's just you know mentally dealing with that, man. It's just like I I knew the rounds were close, you know. Uh, I knew that it was getting close. He really wasn't taking a beating, you know, but the appearance, like his legs weren't up under him and he was going to the ropes and the appearance was that the guy was doing, you know, more than what he was. And, you know, Julian was landing nice, clean shots, but he wasn't stopping the guy's momentum. And, you know, the judges preferred them. You know, I, I still don't understand how somebody could have came up with seven rounds to three, right. you know, uh, but <sighs> boxing man you know you you gotta you gotta take your losses like you take your wins yeah yeah i mean i i, I agree that the the seven three score was kind of hard to figure i i thought a draw would have been a perfectly mm-hmm. fair result in, in this fight but i mean what a fascinating analogy about the rats because that's exactly what what was going on with hernandez here he was close to drowning through five rounds but uh but then just wouldn't stop coming the second half of the fight he wouldn't stop he wouldn't stop and this, I'm, I'm telling you, I, I, I talked to you. I told him about that story, and I kept beating it in his head like he's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. He's fighting. This is this is life changing for him. You are going to have to discourage him in a way you never discouraged a man before. He's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm telling you, I could not have been so much more clearer than that. And I believe he believed me. But being in there with a dude like that is, you know, it's different. He's in there. He's getting hit with him, hit by him, and it's just different. I definitely believe that he believed me, but I don't know if he understood how deep that is where, you know, one set of rats live three times longer than the other set just because they had hope. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's, man, and then when the fighter has hope, and the fighter knows that if he can get you on the other side of a certain mindset, what you're going to do, it's going to be very, very difficult to beat that fighter, man. Mm-hmm. You know, boxing is so much more mental than anybody could ever believe. And, you know, man, that's my boy, though, man. You know, I um, I feel bad for him because I know how bad he wanted this. You know, I really do. I feel I just, uh, he wanted this really, really bad, man. He made a lot of sacrifices for his family and things like that. And to not get the result that you want is tough. Yeah. Um, Let's switch to the main event. Um, because that's the that's what everybody's going to be talking about and uh, and is already talking about. Tyson Fury beating Deontay Wilder for the second time. It was a thrilling fight. Um. There were five knockdowns. All of them came from right hands. But question I wanted to put to you, the notes that I was making when I was watching it, the right hands may have been doing the damage, but it felt as if it was Fury's left hand, his jab and his hook, that was really setting everything up and that was really breaking breaking Wilder down. Was that the key to victory, or or how was Fury able to ultimately uh, defeat Wilder again? Well, I'm going to tell you guys something, man. Fury says something. I was picking Wilder to win. I had a funny feeling that Wilder would be more competitive than people thought he would be. Mm. I really did. I kept saying, man, you know, Fury probably fought over his head a little bit in the second fight. And then Wilder raises his game, he'll be okay. You know, he'll, they'll kind of, 
your kind of meet in, in between. You know what I mean? Like if Fury mm-hmm. comes down a peg and Wilder goes up a peg, they'll kind of be in between. I had a funny feeling Wilder would flip him. But on the press conference, Fury said something that just, it totally moved me. And I put it on my Twitter page. Fury said, holding on to anger is like holding on to a hot coal, attempting to throw it at me. You just wind up burning yourself. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want to kill Deontay Wilder. He's just a man. I just want to beat him. And I'm like, man, this dude gets it. He gets the <laughs> right. art of skullduggery. He gets the mental aspect of boxing. And guys, what's happening with them, sure, you know, there's punches and there's technical things that are happening. But you have one man that's fighting angry and another Mm -hmm. man that's fighting focused. You got one man that's being calm in the middle of chaos. And you got one man that's getting excited in the middle of chaos. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Tyson Fury to think more clear. He can do just a little bit more in those crucial moments because he could think calmer. Tyson Fury has a Muhammad Ali way about him where under big moments of pressure and fatigue, he can function. I've never seen anybody function like Ali when they're tired. Look at the 12th round of Ali versus Shavers. He can function while he's tired. Where Deontay Wilder showed tremendous heart, even showed some technical um, improvement, but he's so angry with Tyson Fury, and he's so um, he wants to hurt him so bad that it kind of works against him because he's he's. He, do you see how fatigued he got? Yeah, and how he fell like that was that was a, a result. It was a it was a brutal punch, but it was exhaustion. You know, he is is and it's it's one man that's 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 able to concentrate under um uh, um the weight of the world is on your back when you're in that boxing ring. Everybody's looking as you as one on one versus another man, and Fury is at home. He's enjoying himself. He's having fun. You know what I mean? He's he's having fun. And and the other guy is fighting, but he's not having fun. He's not enjoying himself. And that's what it comes down to. Sure, he landed his jab. Sure, it was a hook. I mean, you're going to land something. If you, if you win a fight, it's going to be because of one of your hands. You only have two hands. So it's going to be enough for the You know, but I'm telling you, it's his mindset. His mind is on another level, man. And even after the fight, he said he didn't want to shake my hand. You know, I hope God lightens his heart up. He understands. He might have some problems outside of the ring, but he understands the the spirit of a fighting man. He understands it, man. And he he beats Deontay Wilder because mentally he's the superior man. And I picked Wilder to win. I have no problem with saying it. I'm, I'm a very, very objective and honest person. He's superior mentally, not so much physically. He's a little bigger. Technically, he's a little bit better. But Wilder is not far off of beating Fury. He almost knocked Fury out. But Fury can think a little bit better under pressure. Wilder had Fury hurt. Wilder never went to the body. Watch it. Hmm. He was. We went to the body early. Right. But when he had him hurt, he never dug body shots in. Yeah. You know, and it's it's tough, man, but you know, uh 
Deontay, he has, he has nothing to be ashamed of. He poured his heart out. He dug so deep. You know, he went to a place he may not even be able to go again. You know, he put everything into that fight, man. You know, he should be able to hold his head up high, but Fury beats him, man, because mentally he can think better under those trying times. Mm. And, you know, people may not want to say it, but that's just what it is. Right. That man mentally is so strong. And I'm not talking about his personal life because I know people always conflate that and they start bringing up things. I'm talking about strictly as a fighting man inside of the boxing ring. That's it. He's so mentally strong, man, that it's very tough to overcome Tyson Fury. He's like, like he doesn't have an iron chin. You can hurt him. But he like, he almost refuses to be knocked out. Yeah. Like, you not stopping me. He like refuses to let certain things. His willpower is so high that it's just like, and when he's tired, he's functioning. He's touching you a little body shot. He, he just understands how to do certain things. Yeah. And, you know, it, it comes down to the mental part of the game. Yeah. I mean, he's, he is, as you said, so mentally strong and, Wilder, we saw at least one part of the mental game that the heart was on display here. I mean, he's this is I'm curious what, what you as a trainer make of this sort of unique combination of, of assets and deficiencies with Wilder, because we know the power is once in a generation. The heart we saw, uh, we, we know that's now enormous. And yet and then there's the skills and technique, which are maybe about the worst we've ever seen at the very top of the heavyweight division. So I'm curious, what, what goes through your mind as a trainer when, when you watch Wilder fight and, and do you feel like there's some technical hump he could possibly get over and get any better or just kind of like this is what he is? You know, man, I'm going to tell you, anybody can get better, right? But when you're as gifted as Wilder, I never talk bad about him for like, you know, because he didn't have the technical ability that a lot of other guys had because that's what he is. Mm -hmm. And if he was more well-rounded, it probably would take away from that beautiful right hand that he has. He is mm -hmm. what he is at this point. You see how he throws a left hook under pressure. It's not very good. Is it? It's right. it, 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 that, that you are what you are, you know? So when you try to do, certain things that don't come natural to you. The great Nazem Richardson told me this when I first started training fighters in 2010. He said, sometimes it's a curse to be able to do too many things because you go into your toolbox and you don't know whether they get the shotgun, the Uzi, the nine millimeter or the revolver. <laughs> he said, but sometimes when you got one thing that you know you're going to get and you know exactly where it's at, you can go get that and process it a little faster. And Deontay Wilder, when he goes in his toolbox, he knows he's going to go get a right hand. So everybody says, well, you should do this and you should do that. Well, there's only one person that's been able to overcome that. Right. So I'm not as critical of Wilder <laughs> as everybody else because he almost won that fight. Yep. You know, he is what he is in that department. Um, you know, sure, you can improve a jab and, and different things like that, but I wouldn't try to change Deontay too much. I would give him a jab. I think his corner did a good job. He was jabbing Tyson Fury to the body. 
from when he came out, he, he, he didn't overshoot the right hand. He was, he was jabbing him to the body and to the chest to set things up. But as the fight goes on and in the moment of crisis, you, you, you know, squares don't die around. You are what you are. You know, um, I personally would rather be a guy that's great at one thing than a guy that's good at 10 things. So I'm not, that's why I thought he could be competitive. I didn't think Deontay Wilder can be competitive with Tyson Fury because of a jab or a left hook. I thought he could be competitive with Tyson Fury because of a very fast and hard and accurate straight right hand that he's had for the last 13 years. That's what he is. Mm. So, you know, um, when I see him, I see a talented guy. I see a guy that that's pound for pound a tremendous fight. You got to remember he fought Tyson Fury at 210 pounds, the first fight, but he's limited in the skill skills aspect, but his sum total outweighs his parts because he's so fast, accurate and hard with that one shot is it has been able to get him to what, what's his record? 42 and two made millions of dollars, a bunch of title defenses and only one man has been able to overcome it. So, right. um, Obviously, it's frustrating if you're a Wilder fan because you would think that he would be able to do more at this level and things like that. But he is what he is. He's a big puncher. He's crazy. He's a high-strung guy. He's an animal. He has plenty of heart. And that's just who he is. You know, you get him in shape, you get him fast, and 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 you and you work on landing that great shot. Everybody knows it's coming. He still knocked Fury down with it twice. Yeah. It is, I mean, it just yeah. is what it is. You know what I yeah. mean? You know that's what he got. You know, so you know, for all of the, the 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 criticism of it, everybody knows that the one shot's coming and what he's going to do, and he still lands it and knocks it down. Fury, Fury's just a special guy. Yeah. He's just special where he can just take it and deal with it and overcome it. But even he can't. He's knocked Fury down four times. Yep. Even he can't avoid it to a point. He, he, so the, the, it's like, you know, I say to people like, well, how come nobody can stop him from landing it? <laughs> you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. A fighter only has two hands. You know, so, you know, Wilder, it doesn't frustrate me because I don't train Wilder. You know, I just look at him and say he's a talented guy in his own right and what he does. You know, like, he 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 is what he is at this point in his life, and you know, and that's been good enough for everybody else except for Fury. I, I don't know what you can do about that. He's thirty five. He's thirty six years old. If you give him too much, you know, maybe the right hand won't come off the right way anymore. Right. You know. So I don't. I don't. I don't know, man. Um. Um. It's, it's he gonna have to do some soul searching within himself? But I think Malik Scott did a good job. You know, mm. considering the situation, a fighter comes off a knockout loss, he's vulnerable. He's in this, uh, a different kind of state, you know, and I think Malik Scott got Deontay Wilder to believe in him, to be engaged with him, and to um, really put forth a great effort in this fight. And he was trying some things, you know, he was trying to jab to the body, he was trying to jab to the chest, he was trying to say he was trying you know, he did the best he could. You got to remember, Tyson Fury has something to say about that. <laughs> He's in the ring hitting him back. You know what I mean? It's not a video game. It's not scripted. So you can only do but but so much, you know. Um, 
while the other guy is fighting you and punching you in your head and trying to give you a concussion. So I, I think they did a good job, man. Tyson Fury is just a great, great, great fighter. Just is. Yeah. You know, yeah. he, he's a good fighter. And sometimes when you're in the same era as a special guy, you got to just tip your hat to him. You know, you think Joe Frazier's not a great fighter? He, t- he did everything he could. Just Ali is just slightly better. You know, and at the top level, a couple of inches here and here separates those guys. It's not a lot, you know, and he just happened to be born around the same time Tyson Fury is. And that's just the way, that's just the way it is, man. That's your, that's your, that's your destiny and that's your fate. That's what it is. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one one last topic we want to ask you about uh, today, Breadman, uh, pivoting forward to uh, the next really huge fight on the calendar uh, on Showtime pay-per-view, Canelo Alvarez against Caleb Plant, November 6th. I'm just curious quickly, how much of a chance do you give Plant in this one and, and, and what kind of odds would you need to, to put some money on, on him? Or have you, in fact, seen any bets that interest you on this fight? I, um, I give Plant a great chance. I actually think Plant you know, all things being fair, he has a chance to upset him. Hmm. Okay. I think stylistically, Plant has a really, really tough style for Canelo. Um, hmm. I think that um, the problem with Plant, the Plant may have is coming down the stretch once the sharpness and the um, the, the quick twitch reflexes kind of wear down. You know. Um, can he cope coming down the stretch against Canelo? Mm. You know, um, can he deal with Canelo's calmness, his ability to think clearly, his ability to um, um, land big shots, uh, his ability to not panic when he loses a round? Canelo mentally is on another level. And I'm not saying he's on another level from Plant because I don't know what level Plant is on mentally when it comes down to that, but he's going to have to be, he's going to have to take his game to that level in order to beat Canelo. And, um, uh, but I think playing stylistically has a great chance to win this fight. Actually, I think he's worth betting on at plus 600. Yeah, I, I do. I think he has a great chance to win. You know, it's, it's, right. it's the first time Canelo is a, um, an American boxer puncher that can move like Plant since he struggled with the trio uh, and Laura. He's fought some great great fighters, but he hasn't fought anybody like that. That That's a box-first kind of guy, educated lead hand, that, that can do what Plant could do. So Plant has a great chance to win this fight, man. He really, really does. You know, um, he just... He just has to be mentally strong and be able to focus and be sharp in the second half of the fight. That, that to me is the key. If he can, if he can, if he can function under the pressure of not getting clipped in the second half of the fight, I think he can scrape by and win a decision. All righty. Hey, man, look, we really appreciate you getting up so early in the morning after the night before and, uh, your insights are great, as always. We really appreciate it. And a safe flight home, and we'll talk to you next time. Yep, thank you. Thanks a lot, Brad. Thanks a lot Brad. Great talking to you. 
All right, still a lot to get to on this week's show. We have a full news segment this week, the bulk of which concerns fights that have recently been announced or all but confirmed. But the main event of our news segment is this year's Hall of Fame ballots, which have been sent to voters. So we're going to break it all down. Voting is open until October 31st, and the top vote getters will be inducted next year, along with the 2021 and 2020 classes, who, of course, weren't able to be inducted at the time because of covid There are a number of different categories. Not all voters vote for all of them, but the three for which Kieran and I both have votes are modern fighters, non-participants, which includes trainers, managers, matchmakers, officials, ring announcers, physicians, and others, uh, and then observers, which is essentially a media category. We're allowed to vote for up to five nominees in each category, although only three fighters will be inducted and two from the other categories. Uh, Karen, let's begin with the modern fighters category. What are your preliminary thoughts on who should be inducted and who you're likely to vote for? Uh, there's one new entry on the ballot who's an absolute slam dunk, and that is, of course, Roy Jones Jr. Obviously, I'll be voting for him. Obviously, he'll get in. Yes. Um, I'm also going to vote myself for two holdovers from last year, Miguel Cotto and Tim Bradley, um, and someone who, as you and I have discussed previously, um, we both think, I think, has been in the waiting room for too long, and that's Rafa Marquez, um, which would leave me with one more vote. And the obvious candidate is James Tony who, when he chose to be, was an absurdly, ridiculously good boxer. Um, he was on the ballot last year in the ridiculously stacked class. Um, he's back again. I, I didn't vote for him last time, A, because it was an absurdly stacked class. Right. But also because I kind of have this thing, like, if you've been popped for PEDs not once but twice, then I just don't think you should get in on the first ballot anyway. The question for me is whether you should get in on the second ballot. I don't know. I, I eventually will vote for him. Do I continue to have a protest vote? I don't know. Um, at the moment for me, it's probably between him and Carl Froch for my fifth vote. Hmm. For, um, I haven't decided, but I suspect strongly that the three who will get in will be him along with Roy Jones and Miguel Cota would be my guess. Yeah. I mean, this is a weird year in that it almost doesn't matter who I vote for. I'm 99% sure I know which three are going in. Uh, and, and while there are fascinating discussions to be had about who my fourth and fifth votes go to, and you can make a case for a lot of different guys. I think it's immaterial. I can't imagine four fighters going over the percentage threshold if they're still using that. Um, So whatever one's hangups about PED use might be, Roy Jones, who also had a PED problem once, uh, Roy Jones, James Tony, and Miguel Cotto are going to be the top three finishers they just are. Don't fight it. Yep. <laughs> don't, yeah, yeah. don't bore me with your argument for why <laughs> Yuri Arbachakov was actually better than Kodo or whatever. You're wasting your breath. Um, those three will all get my votes. Um, I voted in the past for fighters with PED histories if I thought they were still hall worthy. So no real hesitance from me on, on James Tony or Roy Jones. Uh, the other two spots in terms of just where my votes are going it's really tough. Uh, there are at least a half dozen other names here who I wouldn't be at all upset to hear that they're getting into the hall, whether this year or some future year. I voted in past years for Rafael Marquez and Gennaro Hernandez. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll get my other votes here, but I also have to consider the guy you named, Tim Bradley, Joel Casamayor, Diego Corrales, yeah. although I definitely rate Casamayor ahead of Corrales if I'm only picking one of those two. Carl Frotch, you mentioned, newcomer Punk Saklek Wanjongkam, yes. and others. It's tough. Uh, I, I, I truly have not decided which two 
are getting my votes. But again, it's it's irrelevant because Jones, Tony, and Cotto are going in, and <laughs> my lord, the star power that's going to be in Canastota oh, next goodness. spring. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, all right, moving on to non-participants, and this is a tough category quite mm-hmm. often because as you basically said in the introduction it's it's the everybody else category and as a result there are often a lot of good names to choose from uh who are you looking at here in particular yeah i'll I'll first just say i haven't made any decisions yet i've just looked at it and thought about it a little bit some years i vote for the full five sometimes i just vote for two so as not to water down the strength of my Mm -hmm. votes um a few names that jump out as worthy of strong consideration kenny adams uh, the late great referee Frank Cappuccino, who I don't think I've seen his name on the ballot in past years, but mm. if you don't vote for him, that that is a no-no. That's a <laughs> reference to the Getty Ward uh, documentary. Uh, again, going kind of inside joke, but uh, if you got it, you laughed. If you didn't, I'll move on. Uh, M- Miguel <laughs> Diaz, uh, Brendan Ingle, Pat Russell, Abel yep. Sanchez. It's really tough. You could make a good case for half of the 30 or so names on the ballot. Um, I know that I won't be voting for anyone who is or was president of a sanctioning organization. I probably won't be vote for voting for anyone who was only a ringside judge. That just feels yes. less hall worthy than the other roles recognized here. Agreed. And a few of these guys are a little too young. Like I look at Brad Goodman, excellent matchmaker. He can wait another 10 years or at yep. least another five. Um, so, yeah, I have no idea yet who I'm voting for. There's nobody standing out as somebody I feel that I really have to stump for. How about you? You, you, you got a, a number one you want to try to convince me to join you on or, or just thoughts in general on, on who's on this list? Yeah, I, I will say that I also made the same note that, um, yeah, no Paco Valcarcel or Gilberto <laughs> yes. Mendoza on my and No one who's ever like whose whole claim to fame is being associated with those uh, alphabet bodies is getting in as far as I'm concerned. The one person who I really th- feel confident about voting for is Miguel Diaz. I feel like if any corner man deserves to be in the hall, it's him. I mean, how many decades now has he been um, just a really key member of so many corners and also such a good guy. So I'm strongly tempted to vote for Miguel. Uh, the other names all leapt out at me that, that you mentioned as well. Um, I can't remember if you mentioned Al Gavin, but I did. Um, Tempted to vote for him to uh, an excellent cut man. Uh, and Frank Cappuccino is very much the other one who really did kind of leap out at me. I, I suspect if I were to keep myself to two on this ballot, it might be Miguel Diaz and Frank Cappuccino. But I have to have a think about this. I do feel pretty confident that I'm going to vote for Miguel Diaz. Okay. That sounds reasonable. Um, all right. Finally, the observer category where uh, we might land someday if the hall gets desperate enough. Uh, this right. is tough uh, because we know a lot of these people. We're friendly yep. with some of these people. What are your thoughts here? Um, so until they're inducted, I'm going to keep casting my first two votes in this category for Bob Canobio, the co-founder of CompuBox, and John Shepard, the founder of BoxRec. Uh, I said this before. But their two creations, I think, have fundamentally changed the way we consume our boxing information, the way we research and analyze the sport. I think they deserve recognition. They have they have clearly transformed so much about the way we observe boxing. So, um, but in addition to those, there's some really strong names: uh, former HBO execs Seth Abram and Ross Greenberg, our own David Dinkins Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who, like David, is a fairly recent podcast guest, Tim Ryan. Um, a posthumous induction for Nick Charles would be wonderful. Um, 
Then we also look at like Tom Casino, Glenn Leach, Wally Matthews, Ron Borges. Yeah, like you said, it's difficult and because there's so many worthy people. And like you said, it's extra difficult when you know them as well. And you're like, well, am I voting for this person because I know them? Or am I not voting for them because I don't want to be a bias because I know them? With this category, that's just really difficult because we know most of them. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and a few of them have have been on the podcast. Yep. Uh, Tim Ryan, David Dinkins Jr., Bob Canobio was on the HBO pod a few times. I also worked with Glenn Leach a bit. I know mm. Wally Matthews mm. a little, and Ross Greenberg a little, and Ron Borges, and Seth Abraham, and Tom Casino, and Carlos Arusta, and I knew Nick Charles. So yeah, it it is a challenge to separate personal and professional to whatever extent we need to with this. And and then there's a guy like Alex Wallow, who I don't yep. believe I ever met, but he was obviously great and important in this business. Yep. So yeah, really tough decisions here. I am committing to absolutely nothing on this podcast today. Yeah. That list does not augur well for our eventual chances. <laughs> Yeah, there are I, a lot of names to get through before we get on the ballot. We we need to start uh, kissing ass with uh, our, our all the people in the boxing media who will have a vote. I don't know, twenty years or so from now, we need to start kissing ass now. We need to start laying <laughs> the groundwork. Oh dear, that's 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 not a good thought. All right, <laughs> um, moving on to the. But again, I just boy, if I if there's a place to be. In 2022, the mm. summer of 22 is Canastota. Yeah. Good lord, what a what a weekend to be there! Um, moving on to the news undercard. Uh, first of all, there are a couple of fights of mild note uh, next week. On Friday at the Pachanga Arena in San Diego, Emmanuel Navarrete defends his featherweight belt against Joet Gonzalez, whose lone defeat came via decision against Shakur Stevenson a couple of years ago. And the following day. Mikey Garcia, who is now seen in the ring so infrequently that even Gary Russell Jr. is wondering what the <laughs> hell he's up to with his career. Um, he returns for the first time in about 20 months. Uh, there had been discussion that he might meet Regis Progre, but he will instead be facing Spain's Sandor Martin, who is 38-2 and, uh, and making his U.S. debut. In fact, as far as I could tell, he's fought outside of Spain only twice. And on one of those occasions in Sweden, he lost to Anthony Yigit, who he recently saw on Showtime getting walloped by Rolly Romero. Uh, disappointed in these matchups or just happy to see Navarrete and Garcia in action? That's a good question. You know, it's interesting that Navarrete and Garcia, um, both probably top 20 or 25 or so pound for pounders. Uh, so, so I do want to see them both fight regardless of opposition. They're top fighters. It's interesting that they are on such different ends of the activity spectrum, which affects how yeah. forgiving I am of mismatches or, or right. likely mismatches, or at least kind of ho-hum matchmaking. Mikey, you know, you're off 20 months and you come back in what looks like a total mismatch. On the one hand, I get that you would want an easier fight to shake off the rust, but on the other hand, what a waste of time. Um, Navarrete, mm. I, I can forgive a soft fight more easily because he's so active. Uh, he fought three times during the COVID year of 2020. This is yeah. only his second fight in 2021, but, you know, that's not a disaster. And, of course, he was fighting four or five times a year before that. So I can let a mismatch slide. And, and this isn't even that bad a mismatch. Gonzalez right. is at least more qualified than Sandor Martin. And we'll get some degree of comparison between where Navarrete is and where Shakur Stevenson is. So, you know, there's some value there. Bottom line, I'm not hyped for either fight, but I will watch both fights. But if I hypothetically had to choose just one, I'm definitely more interested in Navarrete Gonzalez. Indeed. Of the two. Yeah, agreed. 
All right, moving on to the next piece of news. You just mentioned uh, Raleigh Romero. Although Showtime has not officially confirmed it, it appears that Romero will be facing Javante Tank Davis at Staples Center in L.A. on December 5th on Showtime pay-per-view. Romero is 14-0 with 12 KOs, although we both thought he was lucky to escape with a decision against Jackson Mariñez in August of last year. He is a good talker. And we discussed after the Yigit win, when he was booed by the crowd afterward, <laughs> that he is setting himself up to be a good heel, someone that people might pay to see lose. And that's part of what our bosses at Showtime are banking on, that, that he and Gervonta can hype this and sell this yeah. and generate some pay-per-view numbers. I have to be honest with our listeners. I don't love the matchup. I don't think Raleigh is worthy of or ready for a fight against one of the most talented fighters in the world in Tank Davis. I'm not going to do the full Larry Merchant where I declare we gave you crap. You know, this 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 isn't crap, but. I'd be lying if I said I see Romero as a dangerous challenger to Davis. I think it'll be a fun promotion, and Javante is almost always in exciting fights, but there are better opponents that we want to see him in with. Uh, I will have more to say as it draws nearer, of course, but Kieran, what are your thoughts for now on this not-quite-official matchup? Uh, Yeah, I'm with you. Finally, in my notes here, I even had the same words, it will be a fun promotion. Okay. Um, (laughs) Or... Or at least it'll be a lively one, right? So because right. Romero's not short of self-confidence or of a willing a willingness to express it. Um, uh, but no, I don't. He's done nothing to sh- suggest that he's worthy of a shot at Tank. Uh, this does have a potential to be quite one-sided because Tank is so good. And apart from the talent level, it's a, the styles make fights, and I just think Romero's going to be really open. His style is just going to leave him very open for the kind of, uh, uh, you know, strength that Tank has. I could, I could just see a mighty Javante uppercut felling him, possibly even relatively early. That said, it's on pay-per-view. If you don't like it and you don't want to see <laughs> it, you don't have to. Right. Uh, and it isn't taking up a, a slot on Showtime Championship Boxing. We'd rather go to somebody else. Um, so in that sense, I think it'll be an interesting test to see you know, Javante's performed quite well on pay-per-view to this point in a, pe- a couple of intriguing matchups. It'll be curious to see if he can do so as the undisputed A-side in a fight with relatively little intrigue, or, as we just said, whether Romero can talk well enough to actually create some intrigue in the promotion. Uh, yeah. The other thing is, hopefully, there'll be a really good undercard to go with it. Right. Uh, several other fights at various stages of confirmation, but all apparently to some extent done. Uh, Jason Quigley will challenge Demetrius Andrade for a middleweight belt on November 19th in Manchester, New Hampshire. I might even drive down for that. We'll see. Um, Vasily Lomachenko will reportedly face Richard Comey on ESPN on December 11th at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Ryan Garcia and Jojo Diaz look set to meet in a lightweight bout uh, on November 27th in Los Angeles. And for what it's worth... Tommy Fury says he has agreed terms to face Jake Paul, and both his brother Tyson and father John have said that if he doesn't win, he will have to change his name. <laughs> I have to admit, I, I like the change your name if you lose bit. That, that's, a, that's a little more fun than the I love Jake Paul tattoo, uh, which did you see, by the way, Tyrone Woodley got the tattoo after all. Uh, we got it. He got it tiny on his finger, but he still he did, did he? get it. I yeah. did not yeah. see that. Oh, wow. um, anyway, uh, mixed bag with the, those other fights. Uh, Ryan Garcia and Jojo Diaz is excellent. Another terrific test for Garcia. Although... 
I predict that I will grow sick of all the purple pros and all the feature stories and the varied opinions on his mental health by the time that fight comes off. Mental health awareness is a good thing, but I predict overkill here because that's what the modern media does. Um, Loma versus Comey is fine. It's not great. It's not bad. It's fine. Uh, Andrade Quigley, meh. We we like Jason Quigley, but I think he's in over his head here. And the Andrade career slog continues. Uh, You know, as long as he brings nothing financially to the table for the bigger names at middleweight, it isn't going to change. I feel simultaneously bad and frustrated for him, but also frustrated by him and not overly interested in his fights. And and I'm sorry to say that uh, this one does very little for me. Uh, Last news item. The tortured saga of the Teofimo Lopez-George Cambosos bout has come to a sorry end, at least as far as Triller is concerned. After Triller finally accepted defeat and admitted it was unable to stage the fight on its most recent preferred date of October 16th because Cambosos wouldn't agree to the switch, it withdrew from the promotion entirely. The sanctioning body in question declared Triller to be in default, and promotional rights now switch to Matchroom, which lodged the second highest purse bid, with top-ranks Bob Arum telling journalists during Fury Wilder Fight Week that he and Eddie Hearn were hoping to work together on a date in December. Kieran, anything to add to this mess? Not really, actually, at this point. <laughs> okay. what a, I mean, we've said so much about it. Um, uh, it's, it's funny. I remember when we, when we said about it moving to whatever it was, October 5th or, or – yeah, the 5th, I think that was right, wasn't it? The Tuesday uh, right. initially that – I said, made some comment like, oh, I'm not going to buy my t- my train tickets just yet, thinking it was just a little throwaway comment. And who knew, really? <laughs> um, I mean, mess is the right word, isn't it? And to be fair, not all of it is Triller's making. Um, it might have all gone through relatively smoothly had Lopez actually gotten the COVID vaccine, for example. Um, but there's just been an enormous number of unforced errors ever since it was the first um, postponement. Um Everybody thinks they know how to be a boxing promoter. Everybody thinks. (laughs) Guess what? It's not easy. Right. And that's why only a few are very good at it. So there you go. Right. All right. Time now for the top five list. Oh, yes. Rubbing my hands together. (laughs) Anticipation. I hope hope that's because you're trying to make fire because (laughs) I... Not because you're excited. Uh, two weeks ago, Eric set a challenge to come up with a series of celebrity deathmatch type matchups between people who are in boxing, but not actually boxing, if you know what I mean. Uh, the more I thought about this, the less I wanted to do it. And last <laughs> week, I was temporarily spared by Manny Pacquiao's retirement announcement, which prompted us to pick our 10 combined top Manny fights. But alas, I accepted the challenge when it was set. I can't back out now. So here we are. So are are you allowed I, to not accept a challenge anyway? I don't know. We've we haven't established we, that. We, we really haven't. But I think that you kind of have to do whatever challenge the other person gives you. Probably you. Do. Right. I think you probably do. Yeah. But I just wanted <laughs> to make it sound as if I was being, you know, magnanimous. And <laughs> sure. Rather than meeting my obligations. So <laughs> okay. um, uh, I am the thriller of top five challenges. I just moved them from date to date. <laughs> until it's, it's uh, but I actually go through with mine. That's the difference. Um, the one thing I did do was come up with some matchups that, at least in my head, have a kernel of validity and that there are actual beefs or sort of quasi-beefs involved. Okay. So not just what we used as an example last time, not just Jimmy Lennon against Michael Buffer because they're both ring announcers, right? Okay. So that was, that was how I went with that a little bit. Um, that being said, some of these are better than others. 
And the number five, I, I have four that I was moderately happy with, and then I struggled with the fifth. Number five, uh, it gets better after this. Okay. Number five is, I think it's the Amir Khan Kelbrook of the list, in that 10 years ago, it would have been one of the hottest tickets in town. <laughs> but now, it's a mere curiosity on the non-televised undercard. Um, it's Victor Conte against Mimo Heredia, the mm. classic, my enemy's enemy is my friend, but which one is which matchup? Um, around 2011, 2012, this would have been pretty hot. Conte, of course, was the founder <laughs> of Falco, purveyors of performance enhancing substitutes to athletes from Marion Jones to Barry Bonds, allegedly. Um, and he continues to be peripherally involved in boxing. He promotes himself as this kind of poacher turned gamekeeper and honest and trustworthy critic of those who continue to peddle PEDs, in which he includes Heredia. And of course, there's a lot of there's a lot of backstory there. Heredia was an associate of a track coach called Trevor Graham. And he, Graham was the guy who set in motion the case against Balco and then got caught up in the case against Balco, as did Heredia. And obviously since then, Heredia has worked with, among others, Juan Manuel Marquez, who became oddly stronger and bigger when working with him. Jean Pascal, who recently popped for approximately 276 PEDs. Um, this would be a matchup where I'm not sure either side would have a very enthusiastic cheering section. <laughs> I think the audience would be confused more than excited. Conti's cheering section might be a little bit larger among those who indeed believe him to have turned away from the dark side of the force. So, yeah, it would be an oddly stilted atmosphere with sort of cheers and lots of jeers. Um, and that's why we're going to have it, like I said, on the non-televised undercard. Before people are actually in the arena, they're uh -huh. still getting their food, their last drink, their their last go at the blackjack table or whatever. And so some will wander in after it's over, hear the result and shrug. It's not bad at all for a number five. I, I, those are names that hadn't crossed my mind at all. I wasn't uh, thinking this far on the periphery of, of boxing, but I, I like it. It's a good good matchup with a built-in storyline. And uh, I, I, at some point near the beginning there, used the word hot to describe it, which is perfect because that is exactly how fighters associated with these men have been pissing for years. So, <laughs> nice. pissing hot. There we go. Very good. Thank Very you. good. All right. So now we move to the actual pay-per-view card. Um, our opening bout, uh, sometimes, you know, you like to have that opening bout that's fun and is over in a round or two. Uh, this is one of those complete mismatch. In fact, we've actually we know how much of a mismatch it is because we've just recently seen it. Um, and there's no reason to believe a rematch would unfold any differently. You could put almost anyone in boxing over the last several decades in with Bob Arum. There's a legitimate reason for Arum to have beef with most people and for them to have beef with him. He's got he's had more feuds over the years than Stone Cold Steve Austin, he says, <laughs> dropping a WWE reference to seem cool, even as it shows his frame of reference is at least a decade out of date. Um, <laughs> but for now, we are squaring him off against a man who is presently ESPN's Mike Coppinger. And just to make it double unfair on Mike, Derek Harmon is the special guest referee. Um, you may have seen Aram erupt at Carpenter in the media room at the MGM last week. Certainly valid to criticize Aram for yelling at a journalist like that, and especially for having Derek, the former light heavyweight who is now Aram's minder, escorting him away from the press scrum. Uh, there's also a way to express thoughts and opinions or pose <laughs> questions to a subject and ways to not do it. But anyway, yes, I fully expect this rematch to be short and sour. Even at 90, I would not bet against Bob Arum. It's a very timely uh, choice here and 
holy cow, I have seen Derek Harmon over Bob's shoulder periodically over these years and never realized it was Derek Harmon. Oh. I remember him as a fighter, and I've looked yep. at that guy's face and thought at times he looks kind of familiar. And when you said his name the first time there, I was like, Derek Harmon, really? And then I'm thinking about it, and <laughs> yep, that's Derek Harmon. Okay. Uh, fun little fun little wrinkle there, his uh, involvement. But uh, now, I, are, is there any chance you're repeating anyone on the list, or is everyone only appearing once? Everyone's once and done. Okay. I mean, you can't have you can't be fighting them you I, know, two fights on a card. I so. suppose that well, well, in claimation well, form, be. maybe. Right. But uh, but okay, so that means that I can just mention that I thought maybe Bob Arum versus Don King, still viable after all these years, might make your list a battle of I've uh, octogenarians. I've one, one over marinated fight. <laughs> okay, all right. So <laughs> didn't want to go back to another one. Okay, uh, all right. But I'll, yeah, I'll take uh, Arum against Coppinger. That's that's solid. All right. So number three on our list is a special attraction. Um, you remember the time that George Foreman took on five opponents in one night. And by remember, I mean, you're aware of it. Not, oh yeah, that was a great <laughs> night. I mean, what were you, I was, I was one, I think, yeah. <laughs> you were one, all right. Um, so we have our own version of that at number three, as in the blue corner, we have Brian Kavanaugh of Triller. And in the red corner, we have, well, line them up. Um, <laughs> you could have representatives of Madden Square Garden, or of Barclays. It could be Jim Lampley, who must surely by now want out of the contract he's been able to avoid fulfilling so far. It could be the California State Athletic Commission. It could be anyone with any taste. Uh, I almost actually settled for his own COO, Thorsten Meyer, who's seen a hard-earned reputation for Teutonic efficiency go up in smoke in like five <laughs> minutes. Um, basically, I end up envisaging a situation rather like that scene in the movie Airplane, where there's the hysterical passenger and everyone is lined up with increasingly more powerful weapons to just shut them up. Uh, so that's going to be our special attraction. Kavanaugh against pretty much everyone else in boxing. Perfect. I'm, I'm now envision envisioning the clay figures of literally everyone in boxing <laughs> exactly. slapping, slapping Kavanaugh as they will work their way down the line. I like it. All right. Uh, number two. Well, one of the participants was once a boxer and seemingly still wants to be one again. Um, but right now he's a promoter and it's in that basis that he's involved here. It's Oscar De La Hoya against Dana White. Um, hmm. Look, plenty of promoters engage in slanging matches back and forth. But White and De La Hoya have particular venom for each other. As far as I can recall or figure out, it all began when De La Hoya unloaded on Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor and he urged to the point, I think, of urging boxing fans not to buy it. And it's only escalated since then. Um, by way of illustration, um, and this is where we put the parent, the occasional parental advisory note in here, because anytime you're quoting Dana White, you need a parental advisory note. <laughs> White recently said that Oscar is, quote, a lying, hypocritical, two-faced sack of shit, and I hate him so much. I love to prove he's a lying, hypocritical, two-faced sack of shit. Um, <laughs> Oscar has of late been singing particular barbs at white for the UFC pay scale, uh, tweeting after a recent UFC event. Hey, Alexander Volkanovsky, you just won a brutal battle for UFC and made one twentieth of what you're worth. Dana White, have some fucking respect for yourself and these fighters and pay these warriors what they deserve. To which Wright responded, shut the fuck up, crackhead. Faking that you had COVID and robbing me of watching you get knocked the fuck out by Vitor Belfort. You should win an Academy Award for your hospital performance. Ouch. Oof. Oscar may be the multiple division champion and Hall of Famer, but the early money's on Dana White here. 
I know you were dreading doing this and you weren't feeling You're great about your list, but this is fun. Absolutely. De La Hoya, Dana White, that's a great actual feud that I would love to see claymation versions of them duke it out. Why not? Uh, excellent right. choice. Number one on the list. Again, kind of precious against the non-participant thing, but it's allowed because one of those involved is an Xboxer and that's no longer a participant. I'm not even going to build this up. I'm not going to give it any context. I'm just going to say my number one celebrity deathmatch boxing matchup is Floyd Mayweather Jr. against a 50 years younger Larry Merchant. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. Perfect choice for number one. It's funny. So when I was thinking of this, your your stipulation of like having a, some kernel of a real feud um, that had a perfectly fine stipulation to go with. It wasn't part of the rules that I laid right. out. And so I was thinking in different terms. And so along the lines of a uh, Jimmy Lennon versus Michael Buffer, kind of mm -hmm. uh, two guys in the same line of work, I actually had jotted down as a possibility a 50 years younger Larry Merchant versus oh. Max Kellerman. Oh, okay. uh, who took a, you know, sort of uh, hard to say whether he, uh, you know, nudged Larry out at HBO, but one way or another, he took over for Larry at, at HBO. And so that that was one that I had crossed my mind. Either way, get Larry Merchant in there 50 years younger <laughs> with somebody. Exactly. There you go. You can't lose with Larry. Right. All right. So, 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 the, so, so the, happy in the end? I, I, I absolutely am, although there's, there's one... Um, one combination that I thought might pop up on your list. Again, if you weren't doing, if they had to be real feuds, I guess I see why this didn't come up, but I thought there was an excellent chance that you would put Raskin versus Mulvaney somewhere in your claymation deathmatch list. Uh, or perhaps you would go the battle of Raskin podcast partners, Mulvaney versus Detloff uh, also, also could have made some yeah, sense, yeah, but, yeah. but the five you went with, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy with. Yes. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, if it'd been Mulvaney versus Detloff, it would have just been Detloff circling the ring going, <laughs> Pretty pretty much. But uh, I, I just saw Bill last night. I don't know how long he's going to be able to circle the ring before getting tired. Oh. <laughs> hey -o. Hey -o. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, many thanks to Breadman Edwards for joining us uh, from Las Vegas. And thanks for his insight. I thought just some of his comments there and, and insight on Tyson Fury and Deontay were just incredible. And um, and, and also the, on J-Rock and the rats. I will be thinking about the experiment was... with the rats for a very long time. It makes me wonder what camp with Breadman is like. <laughs> anyway, fantastic. Uh, we will be back next week. And there's me going... Uh, like his jab was good, right? <laughs> and that, that's my level of analysis. And then, you know, Breadman takes it away for 20 minutes. But there you go. Uh, we will be back, Eric and I, next week when we look ahead to the £130 unification between Shakur Stevenson and Jamel Herring. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind.